Tonight, for the message, we'll be uh, reviewing the core values of our church. Uh, we haven't done that in about five years where we've uh, talked about those five core values. Remember, we handed out a card uh, with all the values on it. We just want to review that. Good time to do that at the start of the year. Uh, and the reason we can do that is because today I think I can tackle this whole section, verses 36 to 50, in, uh, in one swat. Uh, it's one long story uh, of uh, Christ and this Pharisee. And it includes the barging in of this sinful woman. And let's begin by reading this whole account and then uh, getting, our, getting our bearings on it as to where we start talking about it. So it starts in verse 36. This comes on the heels of what Jesus uh, did with John the Baptist, his explanation to uh, John's disciples who were uh, bringing along John's doubts on whether Jesus really was the coming Messiah or was there someone else they should be looking for. And then the expression we talked about last uh, Sunday night about those who refuse to get involved, uh, no matter what you do, they refuse because they reject so highly uh, the message of Christ. And then this Pharisee is one of those members who's rejected Christ and he invites him to his home. And I know you know this story, but pretend like you don't because reading it is so exciting uh, when, when we just kind of see it fresh and new. And I hope that's the case for us today. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. For, but he who is forgiven little loves little. He said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, if this story sounds familiar, it's because there's another very similar story in John chapter 12, also at the end of Mark, where a woman named Mary, a lot of people think that's Mary Magdalene, is seen anointing Jesus with perfume. And it's, this is not the same story. They're, they're two different accounts. A lot of people think that this is the same exact story, but for many reasons, uh, we don't believe that. The, first of all, the, the second story where Mary is the one who breaks the perfume over Jesus' feet, that's like only a few days before Jesus' death. In fact, Jesus actually says when the disciples object to the uh, pouring out of the perfume because the money could have been given to the poor, Jesus says, she's done this in preparation for my burial. Jesus here in Luke 7 is, is couple year, at least a year away from his death and resurrection. 
Also, there's no instance of the disciples uh, rising up and protesting this. Uh, the house is uh, a Pharisee's home in this particular chapter. In John chapter 12, it is a leper's home where Jesus is eating. So there's two very different stories, although they're, they're kind of similar. So I wanted you to make sure that you understand that this is not that story. It's something completely different. And the story, uh, I'm going to break it down this way. There's, it's really a, not that long of a message because the principle is very clear. And so here's the, the nails on which we can hang our thoughts as we go. First we have, uh, we'll set up the picture We'll set up the picture, and then we'll talk about the parable, and then from the parable we have a principle. Okay, so those three-letter Ps, and, and it'll go fairly quickly. I, I think we'll be, we'll be done, and, and the, the point of the message will be clear. So the, the picture, uh, the parable, and then the principle. Okay, So the picture, we, we've already set straight that it's not the same story as John 12, and it begins, as I mentioned, off the heels of this conversation that Jesus had just had with a group of people who had witnessed many of his miracles uh, because it says back all the way back in verse 21 that in that hour Jesus had healed many people and cast out demons. Remember, this is all in response to John who was sitting in that great fortress, Macarius, on that high plain overlooking the Dead Sea, started to doubt whether or not Jesus was really the coming Messiah. Sent some of his disciples to inquire about this. Jesus at that very moment did a bunch of miracles but also proclaimed that he was fulfilling the Scripture and that, he, yes, he certainly was the Messiah. The disciples go away, and Jesus begins to speak on behalf of John the Baptist, saying, you went out to see him because he was a prophet, and there's no one greater born of women than John because he was giving testimony to the coming Messiah. And then they were divided into two separate groups, and this is kind of important. Verse 29 and 30, and since many of you weren't here last Sunday night, we'll just quickly review this, that the tax collectors and people... Uh, understood what Jesus was saying and believed his message of the gospel. And the reason they did is because they had been baptized, it says, with the baptism of John. Then it says in verse 30, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected this. They were not baptized with the baptism of John. The dividing point for these two groups of people was that some were baptized by John and some weren't. The ones who were baptized by John received God's message. The ones that didn't, weren't, or the ones that weren't, didn't. And the reason that is important is because the baptism of John was simply a baptism of repentance. Everyone who submitted themselves to that baptism were saying, I am unworthy, I am unrighteous, and I need someone from outside of myself to forgive me. And there was a group of people that did that. And so they came to John and said, we must be baptized for the repentance of our sins. We know we need a Savior. Pharisees and, and these lawyers in verse 30 they rejected that. They said, we, we don't need that. Now we're really going to see that played out with two different people. Okay? Here, here's, here's how I see Luke is, is, is writing. And Luke doesn't always go in chronological order. But we just leave verses 29 and 30 where we see these two groups of people, right? We have tax collectors and lawyers who, who, re, who received the gospel because they were repentant. Because they recognized they needed forgiveness. And then you have the Pharisees and the lawyers who did not accept the gospel and because they did not sense they had a need of forgiveness. Now we're going to go into the home of one of these people and we're going to have one of the people who rejected because they didn't need forgiveness. And we have this one woman come in and go crazy wild over Jesus because she recognized how much she needed forgiveness. Do you see what's happening? So you go from these big groups, now we're going to see them as individuals and there's a very important principle that comes at the very end. So let's set the scene, the picture. What is, what is really happening? Probably uh, this is after 
Sabbath day meeting in the synagogue. And Jesus most likely, the Bible doesn't say it this way, but, but this is probably the scenario. A lot of the things I read this week indicated this. That it was after the Sabbath day teaching in the synagogue and Jesus was the guest speaker. And so typically and frequently, the guests who were speaking would be invited over to the home for a meal afterwards with maybe one of the high-ranking people of the synagogue. And that's what's happening here in verse 30. And if, if that's not the case, the same is going on. He's inviting him over to a supper. Now, this is one of the Pharisees. I like verse 36, and if you write in your Bibles, you might underline verse 36, the word Pharisee, and draw it back to verse 30, one of the Pharisees rejected. This is a rejecter. This is someone who had not submitted to that baptism, had denied that they had any need for forgiveness or repentance, and this is the ultimate failing of all of the Pharisees. And it really is continuing to be the dominant problem of people in our day. And it is this problem, that people are depending on their own self-righteousness. And this is why we also are talking about this in Sunday school too. It's the idea that God will somehow favor us because of something that we do, rather than on the basis of something Jesus did. The woman in the story understands it is something that Jesus did that provides her forgiveness. The Pharisee didn't have any reason to believe that he needed forgiveness because he was relying on his own self-righteousness. It is the difference between the righteousness of Romans 3 and the righteousness of Philippians 3. The righteousness of Romans 3 talks about the righteousness of God that comes by faith unto all that believe. Philippians 3 talks about the righteousness of man that comes through a list of men's accomplishments. And that is rejected by God. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives us a little glimpse into his pre-Christ life where he talks about what he was depending on for his favor with God before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He says this in Philippians chapter 3, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness of the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here's the key phrase. If you stop listening, listen now. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. All of religion can be broken down into those two types of righteousness. There are people in the world who are depending on a righteousness that comes from the law. I think that's the majority of people. Whatever, whatever religion, whatever name you want to give it, they're depending on something that they do, something that they can earn, something that they can merit. And, and they believe that they are a righteous or good person because of what they're doing. There's that group of people. Then there's the group of people who believe that righteousness, like Paul says, comes and depends upon faith. The Pharisee who's invited Jesus into his home is not doing so because he feels like he needs this righteousness from Christ. Remember, if you tie him back to verse number 30, he's a rejecter. He's a mocker. 
He's a, he's a non-submitter to the baptism of John. So why then is he having Jesus to his house? Why is he inviting him over? I just jotted down a few thoughts. Perhaps for his own reputation. Hey, if I have the synagogue speaker over, right? he, he, was, the, he was the guest speaker, I'll have him over to my home for my own reputation. Or, or just for, maybe for some entertainment for the family. Hey, let's have the, let's have the preacher over. Um, and maybe there were some more sinister motives involved. Maybe it was, there's many places in the, in, 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 in fact, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, it was before this that the Pharisees were already seeking a reason to kill him. Mark 3, verse 6. Maybe it was a sinister reason, an opportunity to trick and trap Jesus into saying or doing something that would allow them to begin to put him to death under Jewish law. Maybe just looking for further evidence of blasphemy. Whatever the reason is, we know that he is not inviting him for a sincere discussion about how to be right with God. We know that because he's one of these people who've rejected. And we also know it from his response later that he doesn't really understand who Christ is and perhaps never really wanted to. Now later in the passage, Jesus is actually going to mind read the guy's thoughts. Did you see that when we read it? Now he does all these things in the power of the Spirit. I believe the Spirit empowered Jesus to do all of the miracles that He did. But let me point it out to you, and we're going to come to it later, but I'll point it out to you now. In verse number 30, it says, The Pharisee saw this action by the woman, which we'll get to. He said to himself. See that? He said to himself. This was not something he said out loud. He, he was just, I think it was more, he was just thinking this in his head. And then it says, and then it says what he said, and then verse 40, Jesus answering. Isn't that interesting? Jesus answering. Now, why would Jesus answer someone who was just speaking to himself? He, wasn't speak, he, he, he discerned the mind of this man. Okay? So now go back to the guy inviting him over to the house. He comes up to him after the Sabbath or maybe on the street. I, I'm, I'm just kind of reading in that it's at the Sabbath. The Bible doesn't say that. So, but, but wherever the case may be, he comes up to Jesus. Hey, would you like to have a meal at my house? We're assuming and inferring that Jesus knows this man's motives are, are not good. Right? But Jesus goes anyway. Jesus goes anyway. Isn't that neat? He goes anyway. In other words, the man most likely was hypocritical regarding his invitation. At the very least, he was hypocritical or was doing it for a presentation to others. And in a darker way, he could have been sinister about his motives. And yet Christ decides to go anyway. As I said, it's a joy to come to Luke every week because we get to see Jesus each week. And what we see here is that he is going along with a person who really has no intention to talk to him about the truth of the gospel, and yet he's going to show his ultimate grace and love for this person who is just in his heart a rebel. What a gracious Savior this is, right? You would think he'd say, you've got to be kidding. Joe or Phil or whatever the guy's name was, Pharisee man. Why would I go there? You have no desire to hear the gospel, yet he goes. Because ultimately he's fulfilling his mission which says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And here is a person who was lost. The problem is, because he is a person who believed in his own self-righteousness, he didn't understand his lostness. And this is the biggest problem of people in society today, and maybe even in this auditorium today, is they don't recognize and understand their own lostness. I mean, people have said this before. In order for people to get saved, they have to get lost first. 
They have to realize that they, are, they, have, to, they have nothing to bring Christ for his favor. He didn't understand this. Well, the further the picture, they sat down and had this meal. Actually, they didn't sit down. They reclined. It's a little bit different than us eating today. Maybe, maybe sometime you've had Chinese or pizza brought into your house and you lay down on the floor or something. You get a little tray or a cardboard box and you're reclining on the floor. And that, that's the situation here, a little bit. There'd be maybe a circular table in the middle of the room or, or a long table with, in the upper room, it was three long tables, but whatever the case may be, there would be a table in the center of the room and people did not eat on chairs like we typically would. They would lean into the table. So if you can imagine this table, everybody who's eating at the meal would be actually kind of either lying on their side or on their, I'm not going to do that right now, but they'd be lying face down towards the table or most likely with on one hand, leaning on one hand so they could be eating with the other. And so you'd have all these people kind of, you get the picture, it's like a little spoke and people are laying in there like this, got it? And their feet are behind them. And behind them in this room, if you can kind of picture this room being the, be a large dining room for the Pharisee, but you have these people kind of spoked out from the table, eating and discussing, they're, all their heads are in together, right? So they're all discussing. And then outside, there would be maybe other people from the village who weren't necessarily invited for the, for the feast, but they would be observing or listening into the conversation. They'd be surrounding. And so they would be standing where? In position to the people, behind their smelly feet. That's the image, that's the picture that's happening. And uh, at this very moment, we have this word in verse 37, behold. This is a Bible word that I wish was a different word. Because whenever we read the word behold, it just, it just seems very formal and stale, doesn't it? I mean, we, we don't use that word, but it, it's almost like a poetic uh, uh, behold. It's, it feels very soft, but it really is a word of surprise or, or shock. Uh, it, it, and I've said this to you before when we've talked about the word behold. It's one of my, it's one of my least favorite English words in the Bible because it, it would be like if we saw a penguin flying outside right now, we wouldn't say behold, right? We, we'd, hey, right? We'd shout, and, and that's kind of the idea of this word. It's like, and, and, and look, Luke says, and, and at that moment, and here's the shock, it's not a shock that there would be a stranger back there. As I said, typically there might be people who weren't necessarily invited to recline at the feast but could be a part of it. And probably at the end of a Sabbath synagogue, there might be a lot of people. Hey, the Sabbath speaker's going to Phil's house, the Pharisee. Uh, let's all go. And they'd be invited, but they'd stand behind. And so it wasn't, that wasn't why he used the word behold. It was because of the character of the person who was in the room. This was the surprise. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, uh, doesn't say this specifically, but this most likely was a prostitute, a former prostitute who was well known for her sinful activity. Everybody in the room admits she's a sinner. Think about it. Who in the room admits she's a sinner? Pharisee does. Says it right away. Well, Luke admits it. Luke writes it and says she was a sinner. But the Pharisee admits it later, saying if this guy would know what sort of woman she is, this is verse 39, for she is a sinner. Jesus admits she's a sinner. Down in verse number, uh, pardon me because it's not indented here. Where does he say she's a sinner? He says your sins which are many. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, he says, your, uh, this is verse 47. Her sins which are many. So he admits that she is a sinner. I would say even the woman admits she is a sinner because she realized she has been forgiven. So everybody admits that she is a sinner. 
There's no question about that. There isn't an overlooking of her sins. There's an acknowledgement, acknowledgement of it by everyone who's involved. Now, everybody's shocked at this, though, because this is a woman of the city. And everybody knows what we're talking about here. And, and what is she doing in here? And then what she starts to do. I mean, very intimate uh, attention to Christ. She brings in this very costly flask of ointment. Again, it's a different story than John 12. Forget, but very similar. Stands at his feet. I'm showing, I'm, this is all the picture. They're laying down and his feet are behind. The woman is standing behind him. Right? At his feet. His dirty, dusty feet. And she begins to weep. And she has so many tears that she's wetting his feet with her tears. Wiping them with her hair. Customarily, women's hair would not be down. It was, it was uh, not a disgrace, but it was, um, it was meant to be a, kind of a private thing. It, this, this is, uh, in fact, there's, there's some who believe, um, and I'm not talking about biblical scholars here, who believe that this, Jesus shouldn't have allowed this because it was, kind of, it was a little too intimate, for, but that's not the case at all, and even the Pharisee is going to announce that in a minute. But she's weeping so much that she's, she undoes her hair and, and she begins to dry Jesus' feet and wipe them with her hair and kissing his feet. And then she breaks open the ointment and, and anoints him with this perfume that would fill the room. And this, is an, this is a wild display of affection. Okay. Look at the Pharisee's response to this. And maybe your response is a little uncomfortable to that too. feels a little strange, maybe it's not a cultural thing. Pharisee saw this, and this is where he speaks to himself, saying, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. Now, notice, this is, this is a fascinating observation. Even though the Pharisee was insincere and hypocritical about his intentions with the Lord bringing him to his house, notice what he does not accuse the Lord of. He can't even bring himself to accuse the Lord of anything improper or immoral with this woman. Right? What's he, what's he blaming the Lord for? What's he accusing the Lord of? Just not necessarily that. What? Ignorance. He says ignorant. You don't know who this woman is. You see what I'm saying? Even Jesus' moral character is, is, is so above reproach that there, there's, there's no way they're going to say, oh, we knew this prophet was hooking up with this. Right? There's no accusation like that. But the accusation is just that he's ignorant. And this proves that he's not a prophet because if he was, he'd know what kind of woman this was and he wouldn't allow this type of woman to do what she's doing here in front of all these people. That's what the Pharisee is saying. A true prophet would know that this sinful woman should not be doing this. And, and the, the scandal of this behavior, look at verse 34 of chapter 7, this is going to just kind of add to what these people are saying about Jesus' scandalous behavior. He's come eating and drinking. He hangs out with sinners. He is a glutton. He is a drunkard. So the image is clear. We have the scenario. Jesus invited to this hypocrite's house where this woman comes in and does this outrageous act of love upon him. And then the, the Pharisee complains about it in his mind. And Jesus is going to teach him through a parable. So we come to the second part of the sermon, the parable. It says he knew the thoughts of Simon and Jesus simply says, I got something to say to you. <laughs> say it, teacher. Now this is not Peter. He says this is the name of the, 
the name of the Pharisee is Simon. I was calling him Phil. His name's Simon. Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. And he gives this little parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both who will love them more. It's a very short parable. It's a simple. We don't need to take too much time to describe it. We know that a denarii in the Scripture is equal to a day's wage. So if someone owed someone 500 denarii, you owe almost two years worth of some sort of debt. 50 is not so much. We could do the math there. The ESV says that when these debts were realized and the, and, and the people who owed the debts uh, acknowledged to the debtor that they could not pay, verse 42, the ESV says that they canceled the debt. And a lot of times when we were using the New King James, I would come to a, I would come to a verse and I'd say, oh, this is not a good word, and I'd quote what the ESV says. Now, here I've got to do it backwards. Because the word canceled the debt is not real great. The, word, the Greek word is charizomai. And you hear that the start of the word charis or grace is actually the beginning of the word. To show somebody favor or to be kind or to give or bestow something willingly. To pardon or remit someone's sin is what the word means. To remove a person's penalty. That's the word. Okay? Can you imagine um, you know, whoever your mortgage lender is, right? And you're looking at your balance sheet for January and... February 1st, the mortgage is coming due, and you're like, boy, what do we do? And you call up, uh, call up uh, Lending Tree or whoever it is you got, and hey, uh, I'm real sorry, but we're not going to be able to pay it this month. Oh, that's all right. It's forgiven. I mean, what would your response be? Okay, thank you. Yeah, right? I mean, the, the, the response would be, huh? Am I talking to a janitor, right? Is this really someone who can do that? Right? You'd be wondering who, what's going on. Is this a prank or something? And, and it's, it's kind of like the old TV shows where they'd go to the general store and they'd have a crate full of groceries and they'd come up and they'd say, hey, could you just put this on credit for me? You know, it's like the Waltons or something like that. You just put this on my tab. And, well, you're running up quite a, quite a bill here, Billy Joe, and you ought, not to, you ought to pay it soon here. And then they finally say, well, we'll just forgive the debt, right? And you've, probably many of you have had some of those uh, types of things before, not something like, like we've just described here, but the feeling of you owed something to someone and they said, ah, forget it. Don't worry about it. For those who realized that they had a debt that they could not pay, what would be the reaction? Would they maybe come in and weep and wipe someone's feet with their tears and dry it with their hair and pour perfume all over the person. Maybe not for a debt of 50 denarii. Maybe not even a debt for 500 denarii. But what about a debt of sin that would cause one to be separated from God forever and this woman realized that? There would be rejoicing and freedom, a burden that would be lifted but for anybody who thought they could always handle their debts, it's no big deal. Right? You understand what I'm saying? People who think they, they've, they've got a way to pay their debt. Right? I mean, is, is anybody contacting like uh, Bill Gates or, or the guy who owns Amazon or you know, these, the wealthiest people in the world? Anybody contacting Martha Ford? And, Martha, your, uh, your lease payment is due. 
right? $325 this month. I mean, is Martha freaking out about that? Right? Is Bill Gates worried about his timeshare payment or how he's going to buy groceries this week? So, so if Bill Gates you know, ran up a credit card bill of $2,000, you know, he got crazy over Christmas, and uh, Visa calls him and says, Bill, uh, you owe $200,000, but, but uh, no problem. We're going we're gonna to take care of that. I mean, Bill Gates doesn't care. You see what I'm saying? He, he, he thinks he can pay it from within his own resources, so the person who's offering to cancel the debt is meaningless to him. Do you see the point that I'm trying to make here? So Christ, and, and I offer it every Sunday from the pulpit, who comes to individuals and offers them a canceling of their sin debt, and say, hey, here's... I'll pay that debt for you. The, the sin will be forgiven. Well, the people who think that they're from their own resources, they can pay their debt, right? My good outweighs my bad. They think they can pay that debt. The offer is meaningless. The offer doesn't matter. Are you tracking with this or not? Is that making sense or not? And the person who is poor, think of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, who has nothing to pay their debt and realizes it, and someone comes and says, I'll pay your debt, that person freaks out. That person freaks out. For any of us, if we ran up a credit card bill of $1,000 over Christmas and Visa calls us and says it's paid, every one of us are doing jumping jacks. There's nobody in this room that isn't freaking out about that, right? Because we all recognize our need. That is the whole point of this passage. It's the recognition of the need to have the debt canceled. That the offer is so great because the debt is unpayable. That's why we read from Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 this morning, because it uses that same word, charizomai, which means to release from a debt. And here's how it's used in Colossians 2, verse 13. You, being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having charizomai, having forgiven you all trespasses. Here in the ESV, it says, canceled the debt. If you have a New King James or a New American Standard, it might say, he graciously forgave. And that's a cool part of the story. Well, at the end of this story, very short, just a couple sentences of a parable, Jesus says to Simon, um, okay, who, who, will love the, who will love the creditor more? Who will love the creditor more? And the Pharisee is indifferent to it. The Pharisee is indifferent to the answer. His answer is almost like uh, he didn't want to answer. Like he used the word, I suppose. I suppose, like just an arrogant guy. Well, I suppose that it's the right. This is how it, I suppose it's the guy who owed him more. He almost feels, I think, that Jesus is leading him to something, and he doesn't want to go there. I suppose it's the person who had the larger debt canceled, and and Jesus says that is exactly right, Simon. And now he's going to go into the principle, and here's the third part. Okay, so the picture is clear. The parable makes it clear, and now what is the principle? Let's state it from the beginning rather than wait till the end of the message. I'll make some conclusions. We've got about five or seven more minutes to go, but here's, here's the very principle. The principle is that those who have been forgiven love those who have forgiven them. Okay? Pretty awake, right? The principle is that those who have been forgiven love those who have forgiven them. I mean, go back to this stupid illustration. If Visa cancels your debt, 
you owed $1,000. What, what are you doing coming in here today? Hey, you, you, everybody ought to go get a visa. I mean, visa. You, you're you're going to promote them and love this company that canceled the debt. Same way if there is a personal debt. You're going to love the person who canceled the debt. And the greater the debt, the greater the love. That's the principle too. So there's two, really two principles. People who have been forgiven love those who have been forgiven them. And the greater the debt that was forgiven, the greater the love will be expressed. So in this room, you have one woman who is going crazy over the top with her love for Christ, and you got this other guy who doesn't realize it at the time, but now is in hell and realizes that forever that he had the guy in his house who could cancel the debt, and he blew him off. Because he didn't see that he himself had a need for Jesus to cancel the debt. He didn't love him one bit. He hated him. He's looking for a way to kill him. The woman of ill repute in society comes in and does these maybe inappropriate things, but is just so overcome with her love for Jesus who forgave her this great debt that she can't help but love all over Him and she's still loving all over Him in heaven for eternity. This is not just a moment in time where this is a cute little Aesop's fable. Eternity is hanging in the balance in this Pharisee's house on a Saturday night and he's blowing it off because he doesn't see the need. This is how important it is. Now, Jesus makes clear to this woman, he, he, he notes all the things, we won't review, but he just reviews with Simon all the things that she did. You know, when she came in this house, she didn't stop crying. You haven't cried once. She, she didn't stop wetting her feet, uh, wetting my feet with her tears. You haven't done anything. You didn't even kiss me. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. She gave me all this perfume and oil. You didn't do anything. He's comparing the two. So, Because of that, he says in verse 47, therefore, here's the conclusion, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's real clear. You've got to be real clear about this. From the tense of the language here, he's saying your sins have been forgiven. Like, it is very clear that this woman has already experienced salvation. So in other words, she's not being forgiven because she's showing some emotion here. Okay? Jesus isn't saying, you're forgiven because you kissed me and put uh, perfume on my feet and washed them. He's saying, your sins have been forgiven. Whether we don't, We're not sure when this happened, but either there was some sort of previous encounter or previous teaching that this lady had experienced and she had already asked for forgiveness of her sins and and realized the depth of forgiveness. It wasn't the love that she showed to Jesus that provided salvation for her, but it proved that salvation had come to her. And here's a better way to say it. Her love and her gratitude to Jesus were the result of forgiveness, not the reason for it. Okay? This, this, is all, this is all she has been forgiven, and so this is the way she's acting, not she's acting this way so she can be forgiven. Okay, that's even the tense that Jesus uses in verse 48. You have been forgiven. Your sins were forgiven. Those who forgive little love little. And those who don't feel like they need any forgiveness don't love at all. I mean, why, are, why, why isn't this church full today? I hear somebody running something electrical today, or maybe that's the heating unit downstairs. But you'll drive home today, and you'll see all kinds of people out and about who didn't even want to give the Lord an hour this morning, right? 
Why is that? Because they don't realize they've been forgiven. So they love very, very little. Or they don't love at all because they don't feel like they need to be forgiven. But those who have been forgiven much and recognize that, I think that's really the key, they recognize it, they love a lot. They come to church and they can't wait to explode with these, sing, with these songs that we sing. And so here we have the difference between these two people, which come from the difference between those two groups back in 7 verse 30. One didn't think he needed to be forgiven, and one realized how much forgiveness she really needed. One person left that meeting, a Christian, saved, the one who realized that she needed forgiveness, and again, she had it even before she came into the room, that's my opinion, and one who looked for righteousness uh, in his own works. And I've already concluded all that. Well, what's the conclusion we can make? Or what's the, how can we make this personal? I mean, what is your level of love for God? What is your level of love for Christ? Does, I mean, the story kind of seems so bizarre in a sense, this woman doing this, but um, is your profuse over-the-top love for Christ, a great proof to others that the gospel has made a difference in your life. Someone has said that an ungrateful, loveless Christian undercuts the very testimony of the gospel so that our gratitude and love to Christ should be so on display that we talked about in Sunday school that the world will begin to take note that our sins truly have been forgiven. The more we've been forgiven, well, we'll say the whole principle again. Those who have been forgiven love the one who has forgiven them. And the more we have been forgiven, the more love we will share. Now, let me make one final thought here, okay? One important point that someone else has made that I, that I take their truth and, and conclude with this. A debt that is forgiven doesn't just go away. It doesn't just go away. A debt that is forgiven is incurred by the person who forgave the debt. Okay, when Visa says, thousand bucks, you don't have to pay. Somebody has to pay that. Who? Visa has to pay it. It doesn't just vanish, right? You spent $300 at Best Buy. You spent 50 bucks at a restaurant. You bought gas for 150 bucks, right? You, you bought a new TV. Well, somebody's got to pay these companies. The debt just doesn't go away. The debt has to be paid. So Visa, by forgiving you the debt and letting you walk away, watch your big screen TV. Hey, that's great. No, no one had to pay that. No, someone paid it. Visa paid it. So when Jesus says, he graciously forgives that great debt, the debt just doesn't go away. There is still a debt that must be paid to the Father. Who is going to pay that debt? The one who forgave it. Which is why in Colossians, isn't this great? Isn't this a great way to end it? That's why in Colossians 2.15 he says, he nailed that handwriting ordinance against us, nailed it to his cross and took it out of the way. And he canceled, he can't just, God just can't say it's canceled and wipe all those sins under the rug. His justice still must be paid. And so just because the debt was forgiven doesn't mean the debt, and that makes the, that makes the forgiveness that much greater. Because he who forgave the debt incurs it himself and pays it on his own cross that we might have forgiveness. Hallelujah for that. Let's pray. Father, as we close now, we reflect upon these great truths and I can't even express it in the right way. I have so much more I felt like saying, wanted to say, and just can't express it because it's such a heavenly truth. It's overwhelming to me. That you would forgive us of our sins. I think of the verse we read, we sang there, that last song, that the Father looks for us like the prodigal 
and, and even though we are shamed and guilty and sinful, you run to us and you, and you forgive us of our sins and you yourself took the cross that our sins might be forgiven. Let us respond like this previously sinful woman who came to Christ with such love and gratitude, overwhelmed by the forgiveness he gave. And let us not be like the Pharisee who cannot recognize our own sinfulness. God, let there be each one who might consider today the message that we've shared and express greater, greater love and thankfulness for all that Christ has done. And we pray these things in Jesus' great and holy name. Amen.